0: You're listening to the Women's HealthCast, a podcast on issues and innovations in women's health from the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. National Eating Disorder Awareness Week is February 24th through March 1st this year. On this episode, I talk to UW Health pediatrician Dr. Paula Cody about how common eating disorders are, how body image plays into disordered eating, and how we can work toward greater body acceptance as a culture. I want to thank Dr. Paula Cody for joining us one more time on the Women's Health Cast. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. So it's National Eating Disorder Awareness Week, and I know that as a pediatrician with an adolescent medicine specialty, this is kind of one of your areas of expertise. This is definitely my lane, absolutely. And I guess I want to start in the more basic lane of, I guess, what are eating disorders?
1: Well, eating disorders are a very wide spectrum of of diagnoses. Um, a lot of times people think of anorexia nervosa or bulimia, bulimia nervosa when they think of eating disorders, but those are only two in a, quite a number of them. So the uh, anorexia, not necessarily being the most common, but the most oftenly thought of is when someone gets uh, restricts their intake and gets to a very low weight. This is also accompanied by something um, like that they have a fear of weight gain continue to do behaviors to prevent weight gain. It's also accompanied by something called a body image disturbance, where the either when they look in the mirror, they say something different than the rest of us sees, which that is called body dysmorphia, denial of the seriousness of their low weight, or the undue influence of the weight or the what they see in the mirror on their whole self-worth. So that is anorexia. Again, that tends to be what people think of first when they think of eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Another one is bulimia nervosa, where someone does a binge. And a binge is not something like on Thanksgiving where we eat a little bit more than we normally do. A binge is um, defined as eating more than most people would eat in a two hour period of time and having a sense of lack of control or guilt associated with that. And in compensation for that binge, someone with bulimia nervosa then does a compensation behavior. Sometimes it's self-induced vomiting or over-exercising, or use of laxatives, use of diuretics, even fasting if it's in compensation for that binge. And that frequency has to happen once a week for the past three months. Those are, like I said, the two most commonly thought of eating disorders, but there's a whole lot of other kinds of de- eating disorders. Um, as of 2013, in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual Edition 5, or DSM-5, which is the book we use to diagnose um, the mental health disorders, there is now Binge Eating Disorder, mm-hmm. which is um, That, again, is a binge where someone eats more than most people would eat in a two-hour period of time, and it's accompanied by guilt or shame and feeling out of control. Um, But unlike bulimia, there is no compensation behavior, so this is just the binge. That, again, has to happen about once a week for the past three months. Another newer eating disorder is called, uh, we call it ARFID, but that stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And that is where someone restricts their intake, but it has nothing to do with body image. It's not trying to lose weight. It's not trying to do anything with their body image. It's more related to fear of food or the consequence of eating. So, for example, we see this in um, people who have on the autism spectrum a lot, that something about the texture of the food or the temperature of food, that they actually severely limit their intake, but it's because of the food, not because of wanting to lose weight. We also see this in people who have had a history of choking or have a fear of throwing up, that they get so nervous with eating that they're going to choke or throw up that they start limiting their intake so that they don't choke or throw up. Again, it's a different diagnosis than anorexia nervosa because the whole underlying mental health part of it is different, but the medical complications can be the same. And then there's a bunch of other eating disorders that kind of fall under uh, an umbrella category.
0: So we've talked about the sort of diagnosable eating disorders and I'm curious if there's kind of a, a broader spectrum of disordered eating um, without fully meeting those diagnostic criteria. And I'm thinking in particular of some of the um, f- kind of restrictive diet culture mm-hmm. that we, um, even as adults, experience things like intermittent fasting, where you only eat for a certain number of hours in a day and then restrict food the rest of the time, or uh Keto diet or um, paleo is one that was in my household for a little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do h- how do those qualify? Right. So, like you said, there
1: is a there's quite a range, and there's a lot of um, disordered eating habits that come that may not meet the um, criteria for an actual diagnosable eating disorder, but unhealthy eating habits or a really unhealthy relationship with food. Um, the common one, the the intermittent fasting is is right now all the rage. We're seeing it in a lot of a lot of people. And if you think about it, this is what we actually do anyways, because we eat a certain number of hours of the day. We stop eating, we sleep. And then in the morning we have breakfast, which means breaking the fast. And eating, so we already do this. That that is actually fine. Do, I don't want you to get up in the middle of the night to eat if you don't have to. However, some of these are really extreme. That you're going 24 hours without eating, or you're only eating within a certain like th- four hour period of time, and that's actually not healthy. Your body does want to sustain nutrition throughout the day. There may be some medical conditions that this is helpful for, but that is, should be done with a doctor, and not trying to treat your own medical conditions that you think you may have with a diet. We have the same thing with keto. Um, a very specific diet that is very hard to follow. And there is research that that's helpful for certain people with seizures, but there is, not, there is also research that if you lose weight with a keto diet, the second you stop keto, it's coming right back up. And so diets themselves aren't usually helpful. They might, you might give you a short-term um, weight loss, but they're usually not sustainable and, again, not perpetuating the right body satisfaction, enjoying your food, eating when you're hungry not eating when you're full like that relationship with food diets tend to not support and whenever someone comes to me asking about diets my my recommendation is eat three meals a day and if you can stop when you're you know eat when you're hungry stop when you're not hungry anymore um that does not necessarily the case for eating disorders when we are when someone has medical complications they are on a prescribed diet a lot of times because we need to give them enough nutrition to to get them out of medical danger. So that's different, and their hunger cues are maybe turned off. But for the average person, my 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 response is do things in moderation. Eat when you're hungry. Stop when you're not hungry. Usually have three meals a day, and make sure you're getting exercise and an appropriate amount of exercise because, like we talked about before, everything in moderation, you can overdo it with the exercise. And if you're exercising just to burn off what you ate, that actually becomes a vicious cycle and you can get to the point where you start having an unhealthy relationship with, with food as well.
0: How frequently do
1: eating disorders occur? Well, uh, again, that depends on the eating disorder itself and um, how they present. So um the eating disorders tend to present in adolescence. The, the median age of, for example, binge eating disorder is 21, and the median age of presentation for anorexia or bulimia is about 18. So that's, it's, that's where I see them very commonly. And again, the people are coming to me with eating disorders. Um, and it's estimated that about 20 million women and 10 million men in America will have an eating disorder at some point in their lives. And if we look at this, like overall eating disorders, when they looked at um, adolescent girls and followed them from 12 to 20, they followed about 500. It's a really interesting research project. They found that 5.2% of the girls met criteria for either anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder during those eight years. Uh, If we look at specifically the different eating disorders, um, up to 2% of females and up to 0.3% of males will develop anorexia. Uh, binge eating disorder is a little bit more common. So, up to 3.5% of females and up to 2% of males develop binge eating disorder, and up to 4.6% of females and 0.5% of males will develop bulimia. And this is at some point in their lives. This is just those three common eating disorders, and not including all the umbrella categories. So, and overall, eating disorders tend to be one of the most common or common chronic medical conditions of adolescents. And young adulthood.
0: So I know since you practice in pediatrics, you're mostly seeing teens and mm-hmm. young adults. Um, how common are they in older adults, I guess? Well, eating disorders, like I said, the median age
1: of presentation is between the 18 and 21, depending on the eating disorder. But we, they, they're every age group. The They can be, you know... There's people who've developed them in teenagers and survived to adulthood and have them. There's some adults who develop them in adulthood. And there's not a whole lot of great research about all the ages because doing research on eating disorders can be very difficult. For one, we've changed the diagnostic criteria in 2013, so it's very hard to follow throughout the years. And they present sometimes so different that it it isn't the easiest to do research on. But eating disorders can present in any age, any gender any socioeconomic status any ethnicity any sexual orientation so pretty much anyone could be at risk for them
0: so I wanted to ask in particular about gender um, <clears throat> I think I come to it with a stereotype that of you know it's something that affects mostly girls and women but but you just said 20 million women and 10 million men in mm-hmm. the US and that's that's huge mm-hmm. so so it's not just limited to women nope They used to say,
1: the old statistic was about 10% of people with eating disorders are male, and that's actually been increased to about 25%. Um, Some, like, binge eating disorder is actually even more, or can be more common in males than in in females. Um, There are certain types of athletes, for example, that we actually see increased risk of eating disorders in both males and females. Some of those sports that are either... um, weight class sports, so like wrestling or rowing or even jockeys or horse racing, or even the aesthetic sports like bodybuilding, gymnastics, swimming, those types of sports tend to have even higher risk in general population than general population for eating disorders, both in males and females. So looking at the research, about 33% of males that participate in either those weight class sports or aesthetic sports will um, qualify for an eating disorder. and That goes up to 62% in females.
0: When we look at um, eating disorders as sort of the big umbrella category. Where do these fall in between a, f- a physical disorder and like a, a mental health or a psychiatric disorder? Eating disorders
1: are actually both. We use the um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM-5, which is the um, textbook we use to diagnose psychiatric disorders. The diagnosis of eating disorders does fall under that DSM five, so they are primary like underlying psychiatric um, disorders. However, these psychiatric disorders have such significant medical complications that we need to involve both. Which is why treatment for eating disorders involves a team including a mental health provider and a medical provider, also a nutritionist. Um, as far as psychiatric disorders go, eating disorders have the highest mortality rate, specifically anorexia, with a mortality rate um, as high as one in five that's that's higher than most cancers if you think about that. So if we look at young people between the ages of 15 and 24 years of age with anorexia, they have a 10 times higher rate or risk of dying than their age-matched peers. So this is eating disorders truly blends both the mental health and the medical category.
0: What are some of the medical complications or physical effects that can be so dangerous, right? Again, this will depend
1: specifically on the eating disorder and the behaviors that the person with the eating disorder does um, exhibit. So, for example, anorexia, it is very common to have um, severe weight loss leading to heart or heart rhythm problems where their heart can slow down very, um, very slow. This is a really big deal because your heart is a pump. It's responsible for getting blood up to your brain and blood down to your toes. And if your heart isn't functioning as it should, it doesn't do as great of a job getting blood up to your brain. And so we see people having a lot of dizziness, um, passing out, or... Um, loss of consciousness, things like that. So slow heart rate is, can be very severe in anorexia. We can see um, periods that are supposed to be coming and not coming. So that's called amenorrhea. That's the fancy medical term for that. And um, that's a problem if you're supposed to be getting periods and you're not because your body's not doing something. We start getting concerned about your bone health. And I've had teenagers um, fracture their hips or fracture their spine which is um, injuries that you you should not be seeing in someone who's a teenager, and that's because of their energy imbalance leading to not having periods. Um, for bulimia, we can or people with bulimia nervosa, we can see medical complications are usually more related to their method of compensation. So people who do self-induced vomiting, we can see uh, very severe lab abnormalities, which can lead to either seizures or. Um, again, having heart problems. We can see people who use laxatives. We can see problems with their colons and needing more and more laxatives in order to um, be able to have a bowel movement with people who uh, abuse laxatives. Just like others, we can see really severe lab abnormalities. and We can can see um, rebound edema where you're retaining all this fluid and you can put yourself into heart failure. Um, And even the eating disorders that have different underlying mental health bases, like the avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. If someone is restricting their intake so severely, even if it's not related to body image like it would be with anorexia, we can still see similar medical complications. So people needing to be in the hospital to get, um, to get supplemental nutrition because they can't eat it that way, lab abnormalities, growth, you know, falling off their growth curve, period problems, low heart rates.
0: What are, what are lab abnormalities? What does that mean?
1: So um, when we check labs, we are often looking for something called electrolytes. Electrolytes are basically your body cells. So sodium, potassium, um, phosphorus, magnesium. Those have to be in a very good balance. That means your kidneys are working and everything's working. And when those are in good balance, your body is functioning as it should. When things are too high or too low, For example, if potassium is too low, you can see that in your heart rhythm and you can have heart rhythm abnormalities. If your sodium is too low, you could have seizures. So each of those electrolytes can have a different medical complication if they're too high or too low. And um, oftentimes with eating disorders for any number of reasons that um, you can have those electrolyte abnormalities and those can be very dangerous. And if we don't treat them properly, those can be fatal. And one of the things we see with electrolyte abnormalities is actually if someone has been restricting their intake so much for so long and we want to get them to start getting more intake, if that is done wrong, that's called refeeding syndrome, and that can actually be fatal. So it can actually be very dangerous to reintroduce nutrition improperly when someone has been restricting for so long.
0: What does um, proper reintroduction look like then? It, It depends on... It depends on the individual because
1: we have to check to make sure we're not stressing out an already stressed out heart. We need to make sure their kidneys are working. And we, when this is done properly, we're making sure the vital signs our heart rate and blood pressure stay okay. We're making sure that the heart rhythm stays okay. We are making sure that their um, electrolytes um, are within that normal range or supplementing them if they fall low. Because, again, having these medical complications can be fatal if it's not done well. So oftentimes, it's actually very dangerous to reintroduce nutrition in someone who hasn't had enough nutrition
0: if it's not done well. So you've mentioned a couple times body image and how that may or may not tie into eating disorders. Um, I guess I, I want to try to understand a little bit better how that works. Um, how, how does a person develop a sense of body image? Right. Well, first, let's go back and discuss actually what body
1: image is. So body image is basically someone's thoughts on or thoughts, perceptions, attitudes towards their physical appearance. So how we usually get to that answer is how I ask patients is, how do you feel about yourself when you look in the mirror? And this body image encompasses what they believe about their appearance. Sometimes what they believe about their appearance is not what other people see, Um, how they feel about their body and how they feel that they can move and live within their body. Um, So body positivity is body satisfaction, and that involves feeling comfortable and confident in your body. And research indicates that body dissatisfaction is one of the best-known contributors to development of anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa.
0: Beyond just sort of like what we see of ourselves and how we view our own bodies, what else contributes to that, that imaging message? I mean, what else do we, what other kind of inputs do we get that might? Right. So with body, um,
1: body image or body satisfaction or body dissatisfaction, um, there are a lot of contributing factors to that. Part of it is our, our society and our society's view of what. Um, beautiful is and how much it values certain aspects of a body like thinness right now. Um, They surveyed American elementary school girls. So they were 6 to 12 years of age. And 69% say that the pictures in magazines influence their concept of the ideal body image. And 47% say that the pictures make them want to lose weight. So what we do as a society is something that contributes to body image. And again, body dissatisfaction is one of the most common contributors to development of eating disorders. Now I'm not saying that society is 100% responsible for development of eating disorders. We there's a lot of research being done. We still don't have one single thing, but there could be genetics, there's environment, there's but society's ideals of beauty, all of that can play a role. And we have these um, these elementary school girls who are already comparing themselves to images in magazines and developing body image issues at that young of an age. Um, by age six, girls expressed, um, start to express concern about their own weight. And 40 to, 40 to 60% of elementary school girls, again, those are six to 12-year-olds, are concerned about their weight or about becoming too fat. That happens as young as six.
0: Do we know when that starts to happen
1: for boys? There is not a whole lot of research in that area yet, or not a lot of research that I've seen that has been able to be reproduced.
0: Do we understand or do we have a sense of how, how that sense of self or self-image, what what happens to become an eating disorder?
1: How does it tip the scale? Yeah. What's the difference between having a low a body dissatisfaction and then having an eating disorder? Exactly, correct? yeah. So that kind of gets to, I mean, it, people don't tend to start with, a rip-roaring eating disorder right off, this, right off the bat. It usually does start slow and kind of work itself to being able to be diagnosed as an eating disorder. Um, that line is different in different people and it depends on the eating disorder itself as well. Like I said, some um, girls in elementary school are already starting to um, develop their own body image and compare themselves to magazines that they see. So th- what is the difference between having uh, body dissatisfaction and eating disorder? It basically becomes to the point where do you start meeting the diagnostic criteria? So for someone with anorexia nervosa, have you restricted your intake to become a low weight? Do you have a fear of weight gain or behavior to prevent weight gain? Or um, plus this body dissatisfaction or denial of the seriousness of your low weight or putting so much um, influence so so much. They don't want to say weight. So much influence on the number of the scale or what you see in the mirror and how that—that that is your self-value. Like, how is that so entrenched? With bulimia, if you're meeting those diagnostic criteria with the um, the binge and then the compensation behavior. Um, warning signs we tend to see, bef- you know, prior to them even necessarily coming to me, is that they people start avoiding social situations in which food is involved. People start making comments about their... Um, their weight or how they feel when they look in the mirror. Um, they can start making excuses to avoid mealtimes or after after mealtimes suddenly disappearing to do some sort of compensation behavior. Um, having some food rules or rituals that I have plenty of teenagers who suddenly won't eat what the rest of the family is eating and they make sure they're eating their own meal. Again, warning signs to me. Um... Then you start having those, the physical signs. So physical signs that you can have outwardly um, would be like hair loss or your hair is thinning or periods are going away, skin color kind of changing, or just even visibly noticing the weight change. And sometimes we see people who are wearing inappropriate clothing in the weather. It's summer and they're still wearing, wearing lots of layers or they're always cold. Those are the outward signs that people tend to see before they even get to me and I start going through the medical Diagnostic criteria.
0: So when someone when someone does get to you, the you've started working through the diagnostic criteria. You mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I'm curious what treatment looks like, mm-hmm. and um, you know how how long it lasts. Whether it's a one time intervention or kind of this more long term, constant working. So
1: a treatment for eating disorders,
0: again, depends on the individual
1: and their individual circumstances and the severity of the eating disorder. There are, it, is a, it is usually a team approach where there is a mental health professional and maybe two. It could be a therapist and a psychiatrist. There's usually a medical profes- a professional who is looking for the medical complications that we discussed. And then depending on the treatment modality, a nutritionist can be involved as well. Um, There are different levels of treatment for eating disorder. There's outpatient, where someone is seeing their providers, you know, in clinic a couple times a week or month, uh, but you're spending the night at home. There is the residential, where you're moving into a facility, and you're getting 24-7 care for your eating disorder. And then there's areas in between. There's something called intensive outpatient and there's partial hospitalization programs. So IOP is intensive outpatient, PHP is partial hospitalization. Those are depending on depending on the type. They're they're fairly similar. You're having two or three meals a day at a facility, but you're still spending the night at home. So you're getting you're having the meal, working with the nutritionist and the therapist with the meal. You're having some group sessions, but you're still coming home. Um, So there's a whole spectrum, and it depends on the person and their circumstances and the um, severity of their eating disorder, where they fall on that spectrum. One of the outpatient treatment modalities is called family-based treatment, or FBT. Uh, It's also called the Maudsley Method, and that's a very specific evidence-based approach where um, working with a therapist who's been trained with this, um, it's usually found to be best in teenage teenagers with anorexia specifically that basically parents take control so parents have to make the food or they have to prepare the food plate the food and sit the the food in front of the teenager and the teenager has to eat the food and that's where um, basically making parents in control 100% of the care and it's very stressful which is why a therapist is involved and a medical person is involved but that has shown to have a lot of evidence Based, but there's you know pros to pros and cons to everything. So that is a very specific within the outpatient treatment model. And your question as far as is this a one-time thing or is it one in, or is it long-term treatment is usually long-term. Now, um, some people with eating disorders will go through recovery and be recovered, and this is something that they had in their past and don't have ever again. Some people. Tend to struggle with body image issues, but will stay mainly healthy. They might have a couple of relapses, but mainly healthy. And some people, this is the eating disorder, is not going to go away, and it's going to be a very prominent part of their life. And like I said, and with um, people with anorexia nervosa, fatality is up to twenty percent.
0: You mentioned some people will will kind of struggle with body image for the rest of their life, and that makes me wonder how we can get to a better place as. As individuals, and then kind of as a broader culture? It's um. a great question, and
1: I wish there was an easy answer. So, for individuals, uh, one thing we can do is we can stop talking about our own weight, stop making um, weight based comments about other people or appearance. We do this all the time, and we have no idea. You don't realize until you start listening that people are like, oh, my stomach is too big, or oh, why is she wearing those shorts? Those are the kind of comments we say all time and those comments need to stop because the people are listening and as we heard girls as young as six years of age are suddenly concerned that they might be too big so um, i always encourage parents not to talk about their own weight don't talk about their own diet don't talk about anyone else's weight or appearance and we need to get the focus off of that now as a culture we need to do a little bit better job of celebrating body diversity we need to um, pick models of different ages, sizes, ethnicities, body shapes, and make sure that we're celebrating everybody's body. Um, we also need to stop or encourage uh, encourage magazines and companies to stop using Photoshop models because we are, we are perpetuating a stereotype that is just unattainable. And I'm not sure if you saw Miss Americana, the um, the Netflix documentary about Taylor Swift. So even Taylor Swift in her documentary that's, that was just released not too long ago, discusses her own body image issues. And her quote in there was just, to me, mind-blowing. She, she Miss Taylor Swift, who, you know, reached the peak of her game, said, there's always some standard of beauty you just aren't meeting. And absolutely right. So even if you got to a weight that you thought would be you'd be happy with, it's never going to be enough. So us as a culture needs to start focusing a little bit more on body diversity. Now I have to take this to my medical people as well, because there's some changes that we as a medical, medical community also need to make. We need to stop putting so much emphasis on weight and BMI. With the obesity epidemic going on, which I, I agree that, um, the obesity does have medical complications that we need to be aware of and we need to watch for. But when we put so much emphasis on one data point, uh, the number on the scale or the BMI and just one data point, we are doing our patients a disservice. I have some people who, if you look at just their weight or their BMI, they look like they're, they should be in perfect health, it's a perfect BMI. But the dangerous behaviors they're doing to keep themselves at that low BMI is causing more medical complications, and they would likely be healthier at a little bit higher BMI. And when we look at BMIs, it's also just an average. Whenever we talk about averages, there are some people on the higher end of average, and that's where their body wants to be, and that's where their body is the healthiest. So we need to focus, instead of weight and BMI, we need to put the emphasis on healthy behaviors. Uh, Are they eating balanced meals? Are they drinking enough water? Are they getting enough exercise? Are they decreasing their sedentary activity? Are they getting enough sleep? If we put the focus on behaviors and not so much on just the weight or the BMI, I think we can take some of the shame of BMI and weight or being at a certain weight or BMI because shaming people does not tend to increase behaviors or it does not tend to increase healthy behaviors. It does not help body satisfaction and puts them at higher risk for developing some really, really bad coping mechanisms
0: and even possibly eating disorders. I want to clarify, so BMI is body mass index, oh, and it's kind yes. of a height to weight ratio almost, yep. um, but it's just a strict, it's just a number, and it doesn't really take into account any like lifestyle factors or anything Correct. about an individual. It is a data point. Yeah. So there's a lot more information that's really helpful to Correct. know about a, a person's circumstance right. in life and
1: um, it's it's a data point in time right mm-hmm. and so you have to look at what their data points have been leading up to this because we could have someone who has what would be considered a healthy bmi and i'm doing air quotes so you can't see that but you'd be it someone who you would think is a healthy bmi but if you looked and they suddenly dropped rapidly and it's like oh look this one data point you look great but this rapid drop is actually putting you at very severe significant health consequences, and we need need to pay attention to that. So you have to take everything in context and not
0: putting so much emphasis on one data point. I would also like to put a plug in, in general, for like changing this body acceptance conversation, changing the conversation around our weight and habits a little bit. I would love for there to be fewer value judgments about foods. It would be so cool not to... Feel a cultural level of shame when I go for cake because it's just cake Mm -hmm. and it's like it's 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 also kind of a data point. Mm -hmm. And I would
1: just love that. Right. That's that's actually something we see very common is labeling foods as good or bad. And it I mean, anything in moderation is okay right and there you can you can have too much of a good thing when someone is drinking too much water which we all agree water is good and it's essential for life if you drink too much water you can actually drop your sodium and have a seizure and we think that eating vegetables is very healthy we know that but there's actually you can too much of a good thing if you're eating nothing but vegetables and no other nutrients you can actually have some health complications and so um Label- labeling things as good or food as good or bad is actually doing everyone a disservice and making people feel guilt if they go to a birthday party that has birthday cake. and it's that's that's fine because that's also socially acceptable. And avoiding social cir- circumstances where food is involved is is red flag for me.
0: I want to end on a more, Upbeat note, or <laughs> and I guess ask you if you have any favorite resources or individuals or advocates who are working us toward a world with better body image. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, first, as always, if someone, if you or someone you know has body image issues or you're concerned about an eating disorder in yourself or someone you know, make sure to talk to your healthcare provider because that first step, your healthcare provider can make sure that you or your friend gets the resources you need because these can have some dangerous complications. So we can't forget that. Now, in general, um, the movement that I'm a fan of as far as the body image um, world goes is something called Health at Any Size. And that is a movement where people of all all sizes are finding compassionate ways to take care of themselves. Um, It's weight inclusivity, and um, components of it include respect, so celebrating body diversity, like we ho- hope to do as a society, honoring differences in size, age, race, ethnicity, gender, disability, sexual orientation. Two would be critical awareness and uh, challenging scientific and cultural assumptions that, again, if we look at someone who we think is a higher BMI than they should be, we may sometimes make assumptions about that and trying to challenge those um, and trying to encompass lived experiences in someone's overall um, status. And then compassionate self-care, which I find very, very important. And that's helping people to exercise, not to lose weight, but to find joy and movement of their body, eating in a flexible and attuned manner that values pleasure and honors internal cues of hunger, and um, respecting social conditions that frame eating conditions as well. And so this is the health at any size movement, which is very positive. I feel like this Will um, going forward will be helping the community a lot, and that if we can, as a society, adopt some of this a little bit more, maybe we will make a dent in some of the body dissatisfaction we see in our children.
0: Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. This is fun. Are teenage patients getting pelvic exams and Pap tests too early? On the next Women's Health Cast, I'll talk to Dr. Bridget Kelly to learn more about preventive OBGYN health guidelines for adolescent and teen patients, including when young people can expect pap tests and pelvic exams to be part of their visits with healthcare providers. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what women's health issue you'd like to learn about. Thanks for listening.